Welcome to episode number 16 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring Oscar-winning director Chuck Workman of the new documentary Magician, The Astonishing Life and Work of Orson Welles. With the 100th birthday of Orson Welles coming up in May of 2015, the documentary commences a celebration of a maverick filmmaker, theater director, radio performer, and actor of both stage and screen, as well as a rediscovery of his work. Many of the lost films of Orson Welles, including Chimes at Midnight and The Other Side of the Wind, are featured in this documentary. Magician also features one of the last interviews with the late director Paul Mazursky, who, by the way, was one of the actors in The Other Side of the Wind, which is currently in the process of being completed, as well as interviews with Orson Welles' daughters, his longtime companion Ohaka Dor, and filmmakers who continue to celebrate the legacy of Orson Welles to this day. Those include Peter Bogdanovich, Steven Spielberg, and Martin Scorsese. The documentary also features Orson Welles telling his own story from television interviews in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s. Among them, his great interview with Dick Cavett, as well as his last interview for television on The Merv Griffith Show. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And you can follow us on Twitter for the latest updates at jogroad. And now we join Oscar-winning director Chuck Workman as he discusses the inspiration behind the making of Magician, the astonishing life and work of Orson Welles. I, I always wanted to do, I always felt uh, this kind of thing, I always felt that Orson Welles was uh, among the great uh, American filmmakers. Uh, I mean, not just great directors like John Ford and Howard Hawks, but a great filmmaker who brought an artistry to film like Stanley Kubrick does, in a way. Uh, and so I had always thought about it, and I would just mention it to people when I would have a meeting, or I thought about doing it myself at one point, you know, just paying for it myself somehow, but that would be too complicated. And at one point I thought of making a fictional film about a character like Orson Welles and even wrote a treatment on it. But it wasn't until recently where I was working with uh, Cohen Media uh, on other things where, where, where they said, what else you got? And I said this, and they said, okay, let's do that too. Because they were looking for product for their own distributor, uh, their own distribution company. And I um, then just spent the past couple years working on it. It's very complicated. There are 40 other uh, sources including many documentaries already on Orson Welles that aren't known. Uh, the one, The Battle for Citizen Kane, which is in the Citizen Kane uh, DVD package, is really very inaccurate and uh, basically keeps, keeps up that old saw that, you know, everything after Citizen Kane was downhill. Uh, and embarrassing to some of the people I know that were in it. Uh, so that annoyed me as well. Maybe that gave me some input uh, to make this film. Yeah, and what's what's great about your film is that you really get a sense of who Orson Welles was as a human being. Uh, you know, just not only from you know, there's like a there's like a uh, old classmate of his at the beginning of the film, and then you're also uh, using interviews with his with his daughters. 
Uh, Christopher and uh, Beatrice is also in there. Uh, so it's interesting to sort of have an entire portrait of who he is and not just be defined for his films only. Um, yeah, but but also one of the arguments I was trying to make was that how these films, how great these later films are, and uh, where you can really see in the progression of uh, um, the clips that you use that I use in the film, you can really kind of see how he's getting better at sound, he's getting better at editing, he's getting better at even directing himself in Touch of Evil, uh, where he's not just a presentational. Uh, hero, but some a really a very rich and interesting character. His Shakespeare films are are very strong, uh, and so I, I I wanted to show that I, I felt that that was that was important. I, I you know in, in a documentary you have to kind of compress everything and and look for a dramatic structure. So I couldn't really put a great deal of, of the clips in, but I got the ones I wanted in and. Um, kind of hear a lot that people want to now see all these films. Yeah, especially uh, Chimes at Midnight, which unfortunately I don't even think is on DVD. You can find it. I think there's a, a PAL version, an English version, and it can be found. And we found it, certainly. Uh, but it's, it's hard to uh, track down and it's not out. It's owned supposedly, and I'm not even sure of this, uh, it's not that I'm not sure, it's that the courts aren't sure, by um, a French uh, producer and a Spanish producer, both of whom have died, both of whom were busy producers uh, when they were alive, and their estates now own it, and everyone kind of fights over who owns what. Um, the music, apparently, was redone, and that seems to be clear. But the, the movie itself uh, is tied up, and even our distributor which has a film collection called the Cohen Film Collection with a lot of Buster Keaton and D.W. Griffith in it, wanted to try and buy it and, and could not find a clear way to buy it without getting sued. So it, it is still hard, but I think that'll unravel uh, soon. I hope so. Yeah, especially uh, now since you know the, the news has come out that The Other Side of the Wind may finally be finished and edited, which is, which is incredible after all these years. Yeah, I saw Peter Bogdanovich, and he's working on it himself. He had been involved in what was an abortive Showtime presentation of it, uh, uh, but there were some legal difficulties with ownership again, and it never uh, saw the air. But apparently Wells had done a lot of it, had edited a lot of it, uh, or most of it, and Peter was just kind of following on on what... Wells had started with the producer Frank Marshall, and they're both in my film. A lot of a lot of interesting people. Todd McCarthy, who's now a reviewer for for the Hollywood Reporter, worked on it. Other people worked on it over the years, uh, on because he did he would just uh, regroup every few years and and shoot a little more and then shoot a little more. Great way to make a movie, but but uh, I say that with irony. It's a tough way to make a movie, but. The fact that he stayed with it is so interesting. Yeah, especially uh, for a narrative film. I mean, usually, you know, documentaries, you know, they take breaks, you know, over a span of, you know, a decade or so sometimes, depending exactly, on yeah. the scope. But for like a, a narrative fiction film, uh, just, you know, very rare. But that's what Orson had to do in order to, you know, get the money little by little and, you know, try to, you know, make it the best he could. Yeah, I have a film I'm doing. Um, 
that's called The Possibilities, about uh, a family. And it's six stories about the family. And the in the opening film, the father of this family dies. And you see brief glimpses of his wife. Well, I want to now, I've done two more stories and I want to finish it this year. The wife, the, the woman who played the wife, the actress, Susan Osbach, retired. She doesn't work anymore and doesn't want to. So if I'm going to do, a, I want to do a piece about the wife, I have to find a new new wife and then substitute that actor into the brief shots that are in the short about the father. Uh, Wells faced this, for instance, in Don Quixote, where Patty McCormick, who was a, a well-known child actor at the time, grew up while he was making Don Quixote, so he couldn't, couldn't, felt he couldn't use any of that material. And, and then other people would die or would have an argument with him and, and not want to work with him for a while or whatever, or he ran out of money. This kept happening. It's very difficult, but it's, it takes, uh, um, I think, some confidence in your work, in his case. In my case, it just takes persistence. But, but I think he was confident that when he, when he ever finished his films, they would come out pretty well. Oh, definitely. Um, I was wondering about uh, the sort of style and structure of, uh, of your film uh, in terms of how you decided to approach it in terms of using both uh, Orson Welles' interviews that, you know, Orson Welles talking about his life and sort of, you know, cutting between different clips of things and also, um, you know, not having sort of a general narrator. Instead, having other people talk about him and have that bridge into making a whole narrative and using music. Um, sort of, how did you develop that uh, style and choose to go with it? Well, I've rarely used narration in, in films, I, I, in documentaries. I have when there were, it was fact-based or it was meant to be part of something. I did a film on presidents, for instance, that I used the narrator. Uh, and, but I think a narration pushes the audience away. And, and you want to bring the audience to you a little bit. I mean, you want them to work a bit, but but you don't want to uh, just put the whole movie in their lap so they don't do anything. So I guess I'm, I'm mixing metaphors because push, it pushes them away because they're not engaged, but at the same time, it, it brings the movie to them in, in a way that doesn't engage them also. So I, I, I you try to build, uh, and, and other filmmakers do this, you try and build the story or, or the exposition around uh, other interviews or titles or, or whatever you can. And um, so I was fortunate to have 47 years of interviews from Orson Welles from 1938 to his death, the night before his death, or appearances. And I just went through them. I had so many of them, and I went through them and pulled out everything I needed and categorize them under uh, career or the name of the movie or uh, um, editing or directing or Hollywood or family, whatever I could. And so when I was editing the film, I would go to this well of material and from all the uh, interviews. And his interviews, he had done so many and he was so good at it that they were very concise and they were entertaining and they were informative. And they were also charming, so they gave you a very positive feeling of Orson Welles. He was never bitter, uh, or not in public anyway. He probably was bitter sometimes when things happened to him. But he was just so uh, much fun to be with that that became kind of a, a, 
an element that went through the whole film. And then I had all the movies, and I had to find moments from them. But to add to both of those things, I mean, I could have made a four-hour movie, but I wanted to make a documentary that uh, had a structure that was film-like, that was, that was dramatic, that had a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and without forcing it, and didn't run too long. I didn't want to make even a two-hour film. I mean, I could have made it 10 minutes longer, but but I basically wanted to be a theatrical experience where you get this gloss of what Wells was, and the depth of it, with a great deal of breadth, in other words, but the depth of it is in the montage, basically. It's in the way it's edited and the way one shot goes to another, to another, to another, that you kind of feel the subtext of this amazing uh, uh, artist yeah, and I, who was trying to be an artist in a world where, uh, you know, artists weren't encouraged. They were, you know, entertainers and great craftsmen were encouraged, but certainly not artists. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the way that you used music throughout the entire film, and that really does, you know, bring you into it as if you are watching, you know, not just a documentary, but just a, a film about a person and just a narrative, and that really pushes you through the whole film. I, I thought that was a great element. Well, that's that's important to me also. I think the, the, the you know, I try not to use score as kind of an emotional thing, but I, it's there. It's kind of the glue that holds the montage together. And there was all this great music, by, especially by Bernard Herrmann, the scores from Citizen Kane and Magnificent Emerson's, that I was able to use as if it were score through the movie. Uh, then I added many other things, as Wells did. Wells was also a very good user of music, and, and uh, it, it's an important element. Every time I do another film, I say, well, I won't use so much music this time. But I always end up leaning on it because I think it's important to pull everything together and, and again, to, to come to the same concept about the, the glue of the montage. You're, you're trying to get people to see that one plus one is more than two in, in terms of the shot selection and that, that things will add up in an interesting way that is not necessarily arithmetic. It's not like A leads to B to C to D to E. It, it's just an overall impression that you're getting when you're looking at all this material, although it's very linear often, but still, you're, I'm trying to show this subtext. I mean, it's nothing new to me. I mean, it goes back to Eisenstein and before, but uh, the music helps kind of glue it together. Yeah. So that's why I do that. And then I try and use appropriate music and not just kind of cheesy emotional score. Uh, in terms of your research process, uh, what's interesting in the film is that you use many documents. Uh, some of them are memos from RKO when Orson Welles was working on uh, Heart of Darkness as well as uh, Citizen Kane and, and Ambersons. And uh, even uh, information I didn't know about sort of his involvement in the blacklist and different memos with the government about, you know, suspicion about him. Uh, how did you go about obtaining those documents and also just the general uh, research process that you went about in making the film? Well, what do you find, whether it's, you know, Norman Mailer or Allen Ginsberg, I made a film about the beat, so I, I know about Allen Ginsberg, but many, many writers uh, at the end of their life uh, 
try and put all their archives in in a library, and they and or when they die, their heirs do. They get paid for that too. They make money. So when he died, he had all this material. He saved everything, and they. I don't know exactly who did what, but a lot of the people that were engaged with him, his manager or partner, one place or another, would also be pack rats and save everything. Two libraries in particular, uh, at the University of Michigan and the University of Indiana, had all these papers, and they also had lots and lots of stills. I initially went to Michigan first, and then we went to Indiana. We, we went to both places and shot there, and also got a lot of photographs there, but I didn't know about all these documents. And so, as I'm pulling photographs to shoot, I'm pulling documents. And uh, I show them briefly. You just kind of pick out one or two words or maybe a sentence as you look at the documents, but you certainly get the impression that of, of what people are saying about how he should recut the movie or how he was, you know, a communist or whatever it was. You get all this from these documents. Uh, it's something that happened in the process of the film. I didn't know I was going to find it. Then there was a, a scholar, Joe McBride, Joseph McBride, who had his entire FBI file. Wow. And uh, we used about four or five pages of that. So it was possible to get that. And, you know, when you make a film, sometimes things become available. You don't even know it. And it changes kind of the way you address the film. Uh, then I was, then I, you know, used certain kind of techniques to, to highlight certain moments of it, you know, nothing particularly radical, but, but I felt that that was important to show them, otherwise they'd be just a lot of flat documents. But I, that was fun, that was part of the, the film. Was there anything in that initial research that uh, sort of surprised you that you weren't even aware of about Orson's life? Oh, there were many things that, that I didn't know about. I didn't know there were so many unfinished films. I didn't know about his politics. I knew that he was kind of a progressive liberal, but I, I didn't really know how much you know people were after him. I, I really didn't understand that much. And there was a lot of paperwork I didn't use, and a lot of stills I didn't use. I mean, but I so I, I didn't really know the details of his life, and I didn't really, and I never. I did a film on Andy Warhol. I did a film on on the Beats. Uh, John Kennedy. I never really do heavy, heavy research before. I, I want to know what I'm looking for, and I want to get a feeling of what I what I think the film should be about uh, in terms of its subtext, as I said before. But I don't necessarily want to give myself a list of, oh, i got to all get it all this in. I, in. In Wells' case, I knew that I had, I wanted to get all the movies in, and, and including some unfinished movies. And I wanted to get his radio and his theater in. I, I felt a compulsion to deliver that and not to skip uh, too much. I even feel today, the film is 94 minutes, uh, I feel today that, well, I should have found some room for his, all his TV work, which he did a lot of. But other than that, I, I, I felt, uh, as I said, a, a compulsion to get it all there so that if some, someone is going to watch the film, they will uh, see what this guy was able to do in cinema, which was amazing, and also see the rest of his life, Woody how he worked in theater, how he worked in other places, uh, his travels, etc. Uh, so 
that was kind of a revelation to me also, is watching all these movies and and seeing how different they were and how, how he reacted to problems and production problems. And, uh, there's a, a story that we show in the film and when he made Othello, which he made with his own money, uh, and he had, some, he had raised some money, but he lost the money. And it took him four years to finish the film, in, in either raising money or using his own. That at one point he was in somewhere in Africa about to shoot a scene, and he didn't have any costumes. So he placed the scene in, in a steam bath. And everybody's running around with towels, and it really works well. <laughs> and uh, that's the kind of thing you would do. And in, in the trial, he lost a, uh, a location, and he had the movie was ready to go, and he lost, he couldn't didn't have the money for a studio to to work in. And he noticed that the train station uh, across the river from where he was in Paris was empty. It was being changed into a museum, which it is today. And so he went over there at five in the morning, and he tells us about that in, in Magician, and decided, okay, I'll shoot there. And then we have these vast spaces uh, in the trial that were very kind of Kafkaesque. He said it was like a, a Kafka setting, which it was. Yeah. So he was, he was able to do that all the way through, and, and I didn't know that. I mean, I knew, believe me, I knew that Citizen Kane was a great film, and I probably felt, along with other people, that it was one of the great films of all time. But I, and I had seen all the other films, but I didn't realize just how important they were. Yeah. What's incredible about Orson Welles uh, in that sort of middle to later part of his career, you know, he was willing, you know, no matter how small his resources were, he was willing to use those to the best of his ability and figure out ways to sort of stretch that and make it the best quality it could be, like The Trial, for example where you know he may not have had a huge budget but when you look at the film and the locations it's it's beautiful yeah. it's really incredible the way he crafted that world well he worked with very good art directors also production designers and so he always kind of leaned on them uh but and they would you know show him the locations but he also was finding them himself uh yeah this amazing and sometimes as a filmmaker you 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 have a lot of determination. I, I've been there, and you and you just say, "Okay, I'll take my hands and I will make this film somehow," and that could hurt you because you do need resources to make a film. You need some resources, and so the fact that he didn't stumble that many times, he did occasionally where he just was trying to squeeze too much out of the lemon. But but basically, it's easy to do that. We see so many especially early films of, of, of everyone, including filmmakers today, starting filmmakers today, where they're just trying to get too much out of it. And it just doesn't quite work. But what Wells was able to do was find a different style. Instead of just saying, okay, but I'm going to shoot the script anyway, I'll just do less takes or something like that. Wells didn't do that. He just would look at how, how this movie can be made. He had a camera in Spain and in his later days he would travel around and when he needed to shoot something he would get it out of Spain so he didn't have to rent a camera he carried the editing table with him There's a, there was an old 16 millimeter editing system I think it was even in 35 that folded up into like a briefcase and he would carry that wherever he in his travels he even I heard brought a 
cassette piece, a flat of some kind that wasn't very big, like a, a four by eight size something, or even smaller than that, uh, that was kind of a neutral thing that he could, if he wanted to shoot something, or, or it had trees, I've heard different stories about this set piece, and uh, he could put something behind an actor to continue to uh, to do a scene where if he happens to be in Greece or somewhere and uh, there was an actor that he found that he wanted to do something or he wanted to do something himself. Uh, later in life he would call uh, a cameraman, Gary Graver, who worked with him very, very diligently and, and very loyally all through the end of his year, uh, life. Yeah, I believe he even, uh, did he shoot The Other Side of the Wind? He shot most of it, if not all of it. Yeah, he probably did shoot The Other Side of the Wind, that was, everything that was shot in L.A. Uh, so I so I think, but he would say, Look, "Come on over tomorrow, and bring your camera." And Gary would, you know, get an assistant and go over there, and to his house in Hollywood, and shoot something—a test or or even a, a scene that that Wells was working on. Uh, so this was in a day when there was no digital and there was no, you know, computer editing. I mean, this was a day when it was very clumsy and expensive and you know, kind of a pain to to do this stuff, and he was able to do it. And, you know, you got to hand it to him. I mean, he really understood how to do that. And yeah. maybe that's why so many films weren't finished. He just uh, would try something, and then, okay, that doesn't work. I'll try something else if I think about it, but maybe I won't. Yeah, he was just sort of an experimental filmmaker in a sense, uh, it both, in, you know, an independent filmmaker and also an experimental filmmaker, always trying to do what he could and, you know, explore different areas. If it didn't work, he would try to start a new project and, you know, keep going with that. Yeah, and the experimental filmmaker uh, of filmmaking world really loves Wells. And I, I've just, I've sent it around among friends of mine in that world that were critics or whatever, and they... You know, it's very nice that they like the movie, but also they they are fans of Wells. It's not like they're necessarily fans of every Hollywood director, but but Wells was not a Hollywood director. I mean, he was basically an independent before there were independents, and yeah. the only independents at the time were avant-garde filmmakers in San Francisco or New York, or, or this was before Cassavetes, before and even before the great foreign films of the late 50s and early 60s of Bergman and Fellini and Antonioni, etc. Uh, so he was out there more or less by himself yeah. trying to make these films. And if and you look at, uh, at F for Fake, it's such an innovative documentary. I mean, at that time, I, I really don't think there was any other documentary that tried to uh, structure itself like Orson had structured that documentary and even the way he sort of explored subject matter in that well, I think he was influenced by uh, uh, the French films, uh, the essays that, that were coming up at that time, like uh, Night and Fog or something like that. So he, he could see the possibilities of what was available, but no one had really done it, especially no American that I know of. I mean, it's possible. I mean, Brackish did a film about a morgue in Pittsburgh. I mean, there were people that were doing interesting films, but uh, when he made that for fake, I mean, he... he you're right, he, he absolutely threw out the rule books. said, I don't care how I'm going to do this. In fact, I'm even going to play with the idea of what's truthful and what's not truthful. Uh, so an hour into the film, he said, he, he said I promised that um, everything was going to be true for the next hour. Well, it was, but this film is an hour and 20 minutes long. So the last 20 minutes you've seen, or 17 minutes, I think it is, is not truthful, and it wasn't. It was about 
Picasso and his girlfriend or something. Uh, so that was even playful. And then the way he cut and the way uh, he put himself into it. In that film, he edited it himself, and he, the story goes, worked every day for a year in the editing in Paris. And he would just go in every day and, and work. It's not something you could sit at your computer and do. And imagine what he would have been able to do had he had you know, a digital world to work in. It would have been amazing. Yeah, he would have, you know, flourished uh, and had so many opportunities for distribution now, you know, even even just the basics of using YouTube, you know, he would have, I'm sure, uh, exactly. took advantage of that. that. <laughs> yeah, um, I never even thought about that part, but of course, yeah, I was just thinking of production, but of course in distribution he would have had all those films out. I mean, he might have been lost a little bit, you know, if, if but in, in just so many films, but on the other hand... Maybe not. And, you know, there are other filmmakers. I don't know if you know of, like, Michael Almereta and uh, a couple others that, that live in this world that's half experimental and half kind of Sundance and film festival. And uh, they they get lost sometimes, unfortunately. And, and so you have to kind of hope that someone discovers you and gets behind it. And who knows what would have happened with Wells. The thing about Wells that he used so well was his extraordinary, uh, uh, his, his fame. The fact that he was so well known as a kind of boy wonder radio guy and theater guy, and then he made Citizen Kane, that, and as an actor, that people wanted to see what he was going to do. But unfortunately, they a lot of panned it. New York Times uh, panned most of his later films. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, luck. Fortunately, there were other people that that didn't, you know. But so he had trouble toward the end, the second half of his year, finding an audience in America. He had it in Europe. This is something that happens all the time. I mean, it happens in in a lot of good films where where there are a couple of reviewers that just don't understand it, or or, or are not making an effort. Yeah. And but the work goes on. The, the the thing about Wells that his girlfriend talks about, his his companion of his last 20 years, Oya Kodar, who's still alive in Croatia, and, and we interviewed her, is that he would come back and back and back. He would not give up. He would just keep going and be very persistent. And uh, it's a great lesson. That was a lesson for me uh, in watching, the, in making the film. I said, look, if this guy can keep going with the kind of crap that he took, making some of his films and even today with this battle of citizen kane idea and many many people still feel that i found in reviews of uh magician that people would come up with these same old saws that he was self-destructive and he was this and he was that i mean this is a, a working artist that kept going and going and going and and you, you know you got to kind of hand that to him yeah. Um, I was wondering uh, the editing process for you because you edit, you know, you edited this documentary and I believe you've edited most of your films. Uh, so how did you approach uh, going about editing? Did you sort of edit over the, the span of time or did you wait until you had all the footage and then sort of dived in? Um, I, I edit all my films and I always have. Uh, and I can't even remember when I didn't edit. Sometimes I bring in a second editor, but Usually, I'm editing myself, and I've and I've gone through all the processes. I'm, I'm you know, 
I cut this on Avid, but I was I went back to Final Cut for a while when I was teaching because all the students were using Final Cut, and then I used all the various film processes before that. Uh, so I go back uh, quite a while. Uh, the editing of a documentary where I have this much time, where I had a couple years to work on it, is done in pieces, as you suggested. It's done where I would shoot something and then I would maybe cut a little bit of that. I was always working on the features his features. I was always trying to cut them down. I was, And I had a, the availability of most of the interviews early in. So I was working on those, but I wasn't trying to structure anything. I was thinking about structures. I would try stuff. But it wasn't until I had most of the document, most of the interviews shot, maybe after a year, that I remember saying to some people where I was teaching at the time, okay, for the next hundred days, I have to work every day. And I even told them the story of Wells working every day for a year on FFX. I said, for the next 100 days, I have to really pound together a rough cut from everything I have. And uh, and a lot of it I cut already, but fortunately I'd gone through it. So I did. So I'm on the plane, and, and, and I had, it was over Christmas, I remember. I went to visit my family, and I'm retiring for a few hours with my little computer to work on this film. <laughs> and then and when that first cut was done, which was around... Uh, God, uh, six months ago or nine months ago, I uh, then I had a couple months or three months to really look at it and refine it. One of the interesting things on, in the editing uh, for me was, and always is when you do a film uh, about a particular subject, is making them real. And it's not just some praise-a-thon that, that, oh, how wonderful they are. I mean, we do that in the film where Steven Spielberg kind of goes over the top, but he's Steven Spielberg. He can do it, uh, you know, in, uh, talking about Citizen Kane. But for the most part, you wanted to show some negatives, too, and not necessarily on purpose, but because to give it a rounder kind of a feeling. So I would look at the film constantly and saying, is this truthful? Does this have integrity? Is this going to be right? And move things around or take something out or, or put something back in that I had taken out. Uh, uh, so I was in that process for two or three months. At the same time, I'm looking at the construction of it. I, I, I don't want it to be too long. I was I cared a lot about structure. Uh, and we've gotten some terrific reviews on the film, but a couple of people say, oh, it's too fast, it's too many, it's too short. And maybe... I, I don't know that. I mean, right now, of course, you react to the reviews and you think about what, they, what they're saying. But I, I, I don't think so. I think it's, you know, documentaries are hard to do as theatrical events, as I, as I mentioned earlier. And you have to, um, if you make it too long, it, it starts to uh, lose its appeal. And scenes that, that might play very well in a shorter film don't play well because people are getting so much information. In my films, it's like, my films are so full of stuff. It's like a fruitcake, that you can only eat so much fruitcake, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so I have to be careful of that. So I, I like to keep the movies under 100 minutes, and I always have. Uh, and it's, it's, so I'm, I, it's tricky what I take out and what I put back in and, 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 and how long this stuff goes. Yeah, I guess the, the key, too, is just to, you know, realize that you're you're telling a story and you always have to serve, you know, the story of it and sort of the whole is greater than the parts in a sense. 
Uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. And in, in the case of my style, uh, I'm not that interested in story, although you know, I have a story to tell. It's about Orson Welles. But other than that, I'm not trying to tell it like a story like a Hollywood movie would. Uh, but we, the audience is is used to that, and possibly psychologically, that's part of the way we we approach things. Our brain works, is, and our emotions work, is to look for some structure in everything. So I try and give it that structure, uh, this storytelling structure. And uh, sometimes you have to kind of shorten things and or 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 make elisions of some kind uh so i'm looking at that when i'm editing all the time uh and then we had you know we, we had i had all the music to, to use and i'd often move around the music and i started editing and, and and then late in the process i would do an interview that i was waiting for uh for instance oya kodar um took like months to decide that she wanted to participate in the film because she had felt she had been hurt or Wells had been hurt by other films, especially Battle of Citizen Game, but also other films, all this bullshit about his failure to complete things. Uh, and so I, that was later, and I had to kind of bring that in into what I was already kind of structuring. Yeah. You also uh, had uh, Orson's daughter, uh, Christopher, I believe? Yes, Christopher, his oldest daughter. Yeah, and uh, at the end, you had a subtitle that said, I guess, Beatrice, uh, his other daughter, I guess, didn't want to participate or uh, wasn't she wanted, involved. She, or... she wanted to review what I was going to do before she would participate. Uh, but she wanted it very specific. She got a, We got a letter from who I thought was her lawyer, but it turned out to be just a business representative. Who A guy I knew, actually, and he was a Hollywood guy who represented a lot of estates. And... Uh, they said no. We have to that we have to present to him and her all the ways we're going to use Orson Welles. Well, you know, it's a documentary, uh, and so it has to have some kind of journalistic integrity. Uh, it doesn't have to be journalism, but it has to have integrity in terms of the way it treats the various sources that are involved. So I couldn't very well say, "Here's what I'm going to do about Orson," and in every case, and here's all the shots I'm going to use. Uh, and they also claim they own some of the stuff, which they don't. I mean, they own what they own. But uh, the, So they wanted to review everything, and I said, I can't do that. Uh, uh, but uh, I can tell you that it's. I feel it's positive toward Orson Welles. And that was probably enough for the oldest sister. I mean, it was enough. And also, I had all these other people already working on the film. I had Bogdanovich and and, and other various good, great scholars, Rosenbaum and, and, and James Naramore. Uh, and so uh, they didn't buy that. I mean, they just wanted me, they wanted to see the script. They wanted to see what we were doing. They wanted a list of every single source that we were using, which I didn't even have at the time. So I just said, okay, we'll just work around that. We we don't have to have her she doesn't want to do it it was only because I asked for an interview and so I never heard from them after that mm. and that, that was the essence of that title it was uh, carefully worded so it didn't look like it was more than it was yeah uh, I was curious in uh, your section on the other side of the wind uh, it's interesting there are a lot of people who are in that film I think even Dennis Hopper uh, Henry Jaglum Peter Bogdanovich uh, John Houston I think is the lead 
Uh, and then you had an interview in the film, which, uh, you know, probably one of the last interviews with uh, the late Paul Mazursky, who uh, passed away this year. Uh, I was wondering sort of, you know, how you organized that and also uh, sort of your recollection of Paul and having him in the film and in the other side of the wind. Yeah, I knew Paul. I, I, I didn't know him as well as Jeff Canoe, but I knew, but I knew him pretty well. Uh, um, and I was, I would go to that little breakfast that he had uh, every day, every weekday at Farmer's Market. There was a bunch of people, including the actor George Siegel and lots of writers, who would all go. And I shot there. And I had won it already when, before he got sick even. I, when I, I, I told him I'm doing a film on Orson Welles and I wanted to shoot your recollections of Orson Welles. Uh, but I want to do it at Farmer's Market. As if you're telling your friends, and not as if, but... At, as you're telling your friends about Orson Welles. So we managed to do that. But I used Paul in other films uh, um, as an actor. Uh, he was in a, a small film I did called A House on a Hill where he was wonderful. And uh, he was a great guy. And, and really, his reputation was kind of got lost a little bit toward the end of his life. I mean, people didn't realize just how important a filmmaker he was. Uh, and he was still planning another film when he died. I mean, he was planning a documentary. He and I even talked about it. Uh, and uh, so I was really happy that, that he was available and, and we could do that. And uh, he was very funny, I thought, and, in the film and said just the right things and was entertaining, including that Wells still owes him $25, he said, for being in that film. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, uh, yeah, Paul was a, a great guy and a great filmmaker, and uh, I always felt very strong uh, about him, and, and I would see him whenever I could. Yeah, I remember there was, a, uh, they, there was a little clip of The Other Side of the Wind that was on YouTube maybe a couple of years ago that had uh, both Henry Jaglum and uh, Paul Mazursky in it. I guess some clips of the film kind of circulated for a while, but... Uh, not sure who may have owned those. <laughs> yeah, what? It, what? It, no, it's part of the wills. It's part of other side of the wind. I mean, you know, yeah. maybe they object to it, or Henry might object, or Paul. But what he did is he put them in opposition about something or another. It was basically a, an improv. That's how cool Wells was. That he even knew improv techniques. And in improv techniques, he he let people argue about something. So he let he asked them to argue. I forgot what it was about. It was about the Houston character, the director character, and whether he had sold out or not. I think. And they were both, uh, you know, I don't know if Henry says this, but I think Mazursky says that they were both kind of loaded. They were they were smoking marijuana or something at the time, and that was on YouTube. I don't know who put it on there, but but that was yeah. And I used a tiny tiny piece of it. Yeah, well, it's great that uh, you know other side of the wind may be completed, and you know I think it's Orson's hundredth birthday uh, next year. Yeah, May. Yeah. May 6th. No, that'd be incredible. Uh, you know, if that gets finished in time. I hope so. I mean, it will be close, and there's a lot of celebrations. There's one at the Directors Guild in L.A. There's one in New York. There are at both colleges that I mentioned, the Michigan and Indiana, and in uh, the town where he went to school, uh, in Woodstock, Illinois. All these hundredth birthday parties, and there'll probably be more. So it's great that uh, that he at least will be recognized that way. No, definitely. Um, so your your film is uh, being released. Uh, is it uh, this week? Yeah, it's out now in New York and L.A. And then it'll it'll come out now being the end of 2014, and and then it'll be 
opening uh, the, all through the country in small art theaters, mostly, you know, kind of specialized art theaters, uh, in uh, February and March, I believe.